Take your Bible and find Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 27. Matthew 19, verse 27. When we moved here over 17 years ago, a friend in Missouri gave Tara and I tickets to the new theater and restaurant in Overland Park. Now, I don't know how many of you have been there, but uh, our table was on the very back row. It was a two-seat table, and there was a walkway behind us, and then there was the wall. You could not go higher in that building. But it was great. I mean, if you've been there, there's not a bad seat in the house. So we went down and got our food and went back to the table. We're having a nice time eating our meal. had a very pleasant visit, and we finish, and we're waiting for the show to start. A woman comes to our table. She's a theater employee. She came in from my left, and she said something to the effect of, it's time to go. Well, it's time to go where? Now, I don't remember exactly how this went, but I remember she didn't explain much. She just said, well, we need to hurry. Well, where are we going? Well, I'll finish that story in a little bit. Right now, let's read these verses. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 27. Then Peter said to him, being Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those, hired first, when, excuse me, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowners, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Now, as we've said, context is king in biblical interpretation. So to understand this, we really need to go back to verse 13 of chapter 19. So take a look at that. The disciples rebuked people for bringing little children to Jesus. And Jesus said, don't hinder children from coming to me. Jesus loves 
children. I mean, you saw the little stampede. That was awesome. Most people are saved as a child. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean by become like little children? Well, some say it's humility, the humility of a child. Right. Children, children will brag about going potty to a stranger. Some say it's innocence. Put two kids together, give it five minutes, one bonks the other on his head and takes his toy. Others, means, others excuse me, say it means teachable, but kids only listen if they're interested. I was telling my grandson something once, and I thought he was I mean, really interested in the middle of the story. He looked at me with this blank expression and just turned and walked away from me. <laughs> others say it's faith. It's the faith of a child. But children will believe anything with no discernment. I used to tell my grandkids I played for the St. Louis Blues, and they believed me. I told them I was the Mandalorian, and they believed me. What Jesus has in mind is helplessness. No one can come to Jesus until he or she recognizes that they're helpless as a child to change their eternal destiny. So next in Scripture comes a man who is the opposite of a helpless child. We call him the rich young ruler. He says he has kept the commandments and asked Jesus what he can do to inherit eternal life. He's not helpless in his sight. He just needs a little bit of help. Jesus knows pride is his problem and possessions are his God, so he says, sell all that you have and follow me. And he went away grieving because he owned much property. Jesus then explained that encounter by saying, now don't let this pass you by. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And statistically, we're all rich. Now the disciples are baffled. I think they're almost despairing. In verse 25 they said, then who can be saved? And in verse 26 Jesus said, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now to the average American, this seems radical, folks. Become helpless, sell all that you have, but saving faith requires genuine repentance. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Unlike the rich young ruler, the disciples did abandon everything. So Peter says in verse 27, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? This turned out to be a fascinating passage of Scripture. I'd never preached on it before. Some commentaries scald Peter for asking that question. I think it's an understandable question. At some point, we all wonder, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And Jesus provides what I think is encouragement in verse 28. He said, Truly I say to you that you will have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. That's heaven. If you have left anything in this world to follow me, you will receive many times as much in the coming kingdom. God is a generous God. He will pour forth blessing on his people. But then in verse 30, he makes this unusual, almost enigmatic statement. He says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now look at verse 16 in Matthew 20. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Same statement. 
So because he brackets this parable with that same statement, we need to know what that statement means. Now again, there's disagreement on this. Some, and they were especially Reformed writers, they said there's no difference between the first and the last. It only means that everyone who gets in the kingdom gets in, and there's no such thing as rewards. But if there's no such thing as rewards, then why does the Bible repeatedly mention rewards? Jesus said, if you're persecuted, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. If there are no rewards, then what he just said was rejoice and be glad for your heaven in heaven is great. Now, one Reformed writer who's Craig Blomberg, very good writer, he said that the first are the saved and the last are the lost. Well, I guess that could be. But in context, I think it boils down to this. The first are those who think God owes them. I'm working, I'm serving, and what do I get in return? In my life, I sold a business, uprooted my family, left money on the table, came here by faith. There ought to be something in this for me. Never think like that. Never. God owes us nothing. The first are those who think God owes them something. They deserve something for what they've done. The last are those who humbly and faithfully follow Jesus. They gladly serve Him. They think of one another more highly than themselves. They know God is a generous God, and they believe what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That chapter says that judgment day will come. Every believer will stand before Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3 is only where believers stand before Jesus. Unbelievers stand before the great white throne judgment. I've heard people say, I can't wait till the great white throne judgment. I hope you didn't mean that. That's where people are cast into hell. So you stand before Jesus, and he and he alone will evaluate our work and our motives. And it could be that some who many regard as important and faithful will receive only little reward, and others who serve humbly and without a claim may receive great reward. Do you, think, do you think that because I'm a pastor, I'll somehow receive more reward than you? That would be terribly inaccurate. Man's measurements and metrics are irrelevant when it comes to God's generosity. You'll see how irrelevant they are when we get to this parable. God is a generous God. So let's go through these verses and then we'll just apply five principles to our lives. There are a pool of day laborers, like in many parts of the world today, and employers would go to a certain part of the village, and those wanting work would be there. In verses 1 and 2, a vineyard owner hired some of them. You'll notice they negotiated their pay. Verse 2 says they came to an agreement, and off they went. About 9 a.m., the vineyard owner came back for more help. Look at verse 4. He said to those workers, I will give you what is right. And verse 4 says, so they went. No agreement, no contract. They trusted the owner would do right by them. Then the same thing happened three more times, noon, 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. And if you remember from three weeks ago, Deuteronomy 24 warned employers, do not withhold the pay of a day laborer. If he didn't get paid, he didn't eat, and neither did his family. The day laborer was the ultimate in living paycheck to paycheck. So now it's the end of the day. And in verse 9, he paid the ones who came last near the end of the day one denarius. In verse 10, the ones who came first 
who worked the entire day got really excited. They thought, man, if he gave a denarius to people who only work one hour or so, what is he going to give to us? But they were paid one denarius. In fact, no matter when the workers started, they were paid one denarius. In verse 11, the ones who hired grumbled, uh, excuse me, the ones who were hired first grumbled. And in verse 12, they said, it's not fair. You thought your kids were the only ones who said that. It's not fair. But in verse 13, the vineyard owner said, you agreed to this. And in verse 15, he said, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? And then a key verse, he said, or is your eye envious because I am generous? That vineyard owner represents Jesus. The worker represents believers. I want you to see five ways to apply this to our life. The first one is in verse 15. We've already said it. God is generous. He is generous. Now, I was shocked to read a few commentaries, again, that said there's no such thing as rewards in heaven. Well, remember the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture, and He did it to communicate to us. And there are mysteries and enigmas and prophecies, and study is necessary to understand. You need a pastor and a teacher to understand. You need a church, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You need a church to understand. And you need the Holy Spirit. He is our teacher. So you need all those things to understand. Even then, sometimes, we see through a glass darkly. But at the end of the day, there is a rule of biblical interpretation that will never steer you wrong. And it's this. If the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. If the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. The Bible says God gives rewards to believers. 1 Corinthians 3.8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his reward according to his labor. 1 Corinthians 3.14, If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Matthew 6.4, Give so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 6, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Second John 2, 8, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Luke 6, 23, if you are persecuted, leap for joy, for behold, your reward in heaven is great. Luke 6, 35, love your enemies, your reward is great. I could keep going. Now, one of the objections was, well, if there are more rewards in heaven for some than others, then, then would heaven really be heaven? Others might feel bad. You know, that's the way we childishly look at it on earth. I think God can work that out. If he can create a new atmosphere and a remade earth and give us resurrection bodies that cannot sin and we will live with him eternally, he can figure out how to give rewards. God is generous. Be excited about the future. This word was intended to give us hope. We will see Jesus face to face. We will not have a sin nature. There will be no more sorrow, suffering, tears, or pain. As the old hymn says, just one glimpse of Him in glory will the toils of life repay. If you're saved, look forward to the future because God is generous. Number two, don't bargain with God. Don't bargain with God. Look at verse 2. 
When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. This is the only one of the five groups who agreed on a wage. Other vineyards were, uh, other, excuse me, vineyard owners were undoubtedly at this day laborer pool. And you assume that the workers ask each, what are you offering? And a denarius was the best offer. And they came to an agreement. And they got what they thought they should get. Turned out they didn't. Don't bargain with God. He's generous. It's better to let Jesus draw up the contract than you try to draw up your own. Now here's what I mean by that. Fully surrender who you are, what you have, and what you do to God. Your life, your money, your family, your house, your assets, your health, your children, and your time. Surrender it all to God. It's not yours anyway. You only think you owe those things, own those things. Surrender it all to God and then don't even think about, well, what will God give me in return? One of the biggest mistakes I think that Christians use is possessive pronouns. My time, my money, my family. And one of my pet peeves, do you hear me contradicting myself? <laughs> Some of you do. Is when a pastor says, my church. Man, it's not your church, pastor. It's God's church. You're nothing but an under-shepherd. I'm preaching to myself. Well, my time is my time, and I'm going to draw the line on man. You don't draw a line on anything. God gave you everything. He called you to be a good steward of it. All God has to do is touch one molecule of anything. Your time, your money, your family, your life, and it can disintegrate. Surrender it all to God and let Him do with it what He wishes. Now, say a man is called to ministry. And I know this because I went through it. At the start, he says, God, whatever you tell me I will do, wherever you send me, I will go. You want me to do what? Well, now, wait a minute. I might not get paid well there, and the climate might not be really difficult there, and I didn't intend to live overseas, so I'm not going to do these things. No, no. The only agreement we draw up with God are the terms of total surrender. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul said he was crucified with Christ, but he wrote that about 15 years after Christ was crucified. So what did he mean? John 12, 24 explains. He said, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You can't live for Jesus until you die to self. Fruitfulness comes when there is death to the carnal life, death to the self-life, death to the life of the flesh. Once you die, that's when you bear much fruit. 
all the way through the Gospels, Jesus keeps coming back to a principle that he articulates like this. Except a man deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. The cross is the symbol of death. Jesus is saying, unless a man dies to self, he cannot be my disciple. He's not saved. But here's the good news. That means when Jesus died on the cross, he took you with him. When you trusted Jesus Christ as Lord, you died and he created a new you. Now when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you as alive to sin. And you don't live the same immoral life you lived before you were saved. You're now dead to sin and alive to Christ. You and I have to appropriate that new life in Christ daily. And we do that by faith. Romans chapter 6 says, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So a daily prayer is, Lord, I surrender myself to you afresh and anew. To put it another way, salvation means you come to the place where you recognize your flesh cannot please God. So you condemn the flesh, you crucify it, and you arrive at the place where you're willing to say, my life is not my own. My family is not my own. My ministry is not my own. Lord, I have no business telling you what to do with my life. As best I can, as I can discern your will, Lord, whatever you tell me, I will do. Wherever you send me, I will go, no matter how much it may make me afraid. And if we're honest, some of you might say, you know, I'm not willing to do that. I'm going to hear what you're saying, but there's so much fear in my heart or so much concern. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to surrender that. Robert Murray McShane has the answer to that. He was a great Scottish preacher who lived in the 1800s, died before he was 30. But here's what he said. He said, pray this, Lord, I am not willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. I am not willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. The Lord will answer that prayer. Now, all of this is not a negative Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The measure to which the life of Jesus is released in you is determined by the degree to which you are dead to self and alive to Him. The measure to which the life of Jesus is released in you is determined by the degree to which you are dead to self and alive to Him. And if that sounds too hard, realize there is no demand made on your life, not one that is not at the same time a demand on the life of Jesus who lives inside of you. Every demand on your life, an enemy attack, a persecution, is actually an attack on Jesus. Now what's the significance of that? Now it's his problem, not yours. Trust him to tackle it. And this isn't simple-minded passivity. This is faith. I have to tell myself this over and over. My money is not my money. My health is not my health. This is, I've never thought this, but this is not my church. This is God's church. Nothing is mine. Everything is his. Some of you are smiling. Some of you are nodding. Some of you look like you're at a funeral. This is good news, folks. It really is. I heard a preacher once years ago say, it's none of your business whether the Lord uses you or not. It's His. Now, I had to chew on that for a while. But I think that's accurate. 
My business is to be faithful. God will use me however he sees fit, and that's true with you. Are you ever concerned if God is using you? I hope you are. But don't worry about to what degree you think he's using you. You will not know until you get to heaven. Here's what's important. Are you giving him your all? Are you fully surrendered to him? Are you being a good steward of all that he's entrusted to you? If you can answer yes to the best of your knowledge to all three of those questions, don't worry about anything else. What you and I have to do is say, Your will, Lord, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's all I want. You put your life in the hands of God like that, I tell you on the authority of God's word, you will be blessed for all of eternity. Don't bargain with God. Number three, don't look at other workers. The workers who made a bargain in verse 2, well, look at verse 11. The vineyard owner paid them according to the agreement. And verse 11 says, when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, the last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. They were watching what the others were doing, and they were worrying they weren't getting as much. In Mark 9, 38, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he wasn't following us. Not you, Lord. He wasn't following us. Lord, we're the only ones who can do this. Make him stop. Again, it's like little children. <laughs> but in verse 39 of that passage, Jesus said, do not hinder them. In other words, keep busy doing what you're called to do. Don't worry about what they're doing. If I know of any other church or denomination or non-denomination that God is using to bring people to Jesus, I rejoice. As long as it's not contrary to Scripture, praise God. And if there's anything that we can do to help someone, they're, they're welcome. There are no trade secrets. They're welcome to it. I had this conversation with a pastor last night. We want to bless with open hands to bring as many people into the kingdom as possible. Today, unfortunately... There's a great deal of you have to believe this exact way that exists in evangelicalism. I heard Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, I found a sermon of his and listened to it this week, and he said, some people love theological systems more than they love Jesus. Ouch. I've been told that if I can't speak in tongues, I'm not saved. I've been told that if I don't have a second baptism, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm not saved. <laughs> now, some truths are not negotiable. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, the sinless life, the atoning death, the burial, and the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming of Jesus, you're not a Christian. Don't kid yourself. You may be new in the faith and not exactly understand why some of that matters, but you will. But there's room for disagreement outside those bedrock truths. Now, I get asked this question a lot, so I'm going to go after this. We can disagree strongly enough on things that it keeps us apart on Sunday mornings. Some say, oh, that's terrible. It's not. It's God's wisdom, and here's why. Different kinds of churches and even different ecclesiological systems and, and, and other different aspects of Christianity, they tend to draw specific kinds of people. 
We can say that the church should be diverse and non-homogeneous, and that's true, and I so wish we were multi-ethnic, but should be in reality tend to be poles apart. It takes churches that are quite different to reach a world full of people who are quite different. Imagine taking our way of doing church and going to another country and just, well, why don't people respond? It's because it's a different culture. They're going to do things differently. Now, some churches teach things that are harmful. Gross spiritual error has to be called out. Spiritual abuse, legalism, liberalism, it has to be opposed. Things that deeply mislead people. Still others use the name Christian and are anything but. I've heard it said that all these differences will sound so silly at the foot of the cross. Well, it depends on the difference. It's only faith in the biblical Jesus that saves. But I rejoice, for example, that Bible-believing Anglicanism is making inroads in Africa. That's very far apart from Baptistic theology, which is generally believed in Orthodox evangelicalism, whether or not it has the name Baptist. But we don't look at other workers and say, well, why aren't they doing it like we do it? Why, why God can do whatever He wishes. The workers who made their bargain with the owner became jealous. Why didn't we get what they got? Don't look at other workers. This happens in a church. Well, why is it that the same people always serve? We serve the community, and some people never help one bit. And others serve diligently here, yet others will never help one bit. Don't worry about that. Let Jesus take care of that, and He will take care of it. Don't look at other workers. Don't look at non-workers. There's an old story that's undoubtedly anecdotal. It's about foreign missionaries on a large boat pulling into the dock, and they had served faithfully overseas for years. They saw a large crowd in the media there and thought it was for them, but as they disembarked, it turned out to be for the president who'd gone on a hunting trip. And the wife said, honey, we gave our whole lives to share the gospel. We labored faithfully, we served diligently, we did it in anonymity, and there's no one here to greet us, but the president goes hunting and gets all this. And the husband said, honey, our day hasn't come yet. Payday comes someday. Are you comparing your life to others, or are you comparing it to Jesus? Pattern your life after his, and you won't have heart trouble by looking at someone else. All right, I'm going to move quickly on these next two. Number, three, number four, check your motives. As we serve God, we never serve him because of a promised reward. We serve him because we love him, and it is a privilege to serve him. Beware of being like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He dutifully served the father, but his heart was never in it. Beware of being like Jonah. He served God, but his heart was never in it. Number five, desire mercy, not fairness. The first shift workers thought the vineyard owner was unfair to them, but we deserve nothing from God. We need to desire mercy, not fairness. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve, which is hell. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, which is heaven. Now, if you serve Jesus, remember that the Lord has His way of measuring what we do. And the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Back to the dinner theater. The employee said something to the effect of us, Well, let's go. The show is about to start. Well, go. Where are we going? Well, we're going down front. Remember, we were sitting in the back. 
Well, what do you mean we're going down front? Well, do you see that empty table right in front of the stage? Well, you won. That's where you're going to sit. Well, how did we win? You won. You get to go there. To this day, we don't have the slightest idea how we won. We didn't enter any contest. She just came up with her hair on fire and said, we need to go. But through no merit of our own, we went from the very back row to the very front row just like that. That's the way God works. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never been saved, that kingdom to come, kingdom to come you're not sure you're going to be there, remember that no one is first saved without repentance, which is a change of action and attitude towards sin. You come to Him humbly, repenting of all known sin. As far as you can understand it, you surrender your life completely to Him. You believe that He died on the cross to take away your sin. You believe that He rose again on the third day to defeat death. And you believe Him with your entire heart, that is, your entire being. So if you've never been saved, you can be saved right now. If you want to have a discussion with myself or Nathan or Kirk, just fill out that little QR code. Stop us on the way out. We'd love to have that conversation with you. If you are saved, don't look back at the past. You weren't saved by a prayer or a ritual. You were saved by faith in Jesus. Sometimes people say, I'm not sure I'm saved. Here's the question. It's not what you did in the past. The question is, do you believe right now? Let's pray.